Hello and welcome to another edition of the Masquerandi Media Podcast. My name is Mike Appleton and it's good to have you on board once again. This time around, I've got an interview for you. I spoke quite recently with Jack Overhill, who's the training officer at the Red Rose Caving and Pothole Club based up in Casterton near Barbon. Jack's an interesting chap because he's, well, he's, he's young, you know, and I'm a little bit older, so that was a good little conversation there. But we have a real wide-ranging conversation about kind of caving, adventure tourism, reputation of caving at the moment, and also he was involved in the cave rescue in Brecon Beacons quite recently as well. I've split this interview into two halves, so in the first half you'll get to hear all about that kind of caving and adventure tourism and that cave rescue. In the second half we go a little bit more into kind of what Jack's been up to, his passion for caving, his work with special needs and also uh, various little things about risk and conservation and and things like that. It's a wide-ranging conversation and I hope uh, you'll you'll enjoy it. Uh, A couple of words of I don't know, warning, possibly. Firstly, this was recorded in the reading room at the Red Rose Caving and Pothole Club farm up at Bullpot, uh, which was anything like uh, library-like. So firstly, you'll probably hear a, a small beeping sound all the way through the audio. Unfortunately, it looked like something was wrong with one of the computers that we got in there and we couldn't fix it. And secondly, uh, I was starting with a cold as well, which you can probably hear in my uh, my voice now. Oh, and there's a very, very angry bee in there at, at some point as well, but I'm hoping it doesn't spoil the uh, the enjoyment of the show. So on we go, and uh, here's my chat with Jack. Jack, good to see you. Hello. We finally managed to tie this down. How long have we been looking to do this for? I know, best part of a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we finally managed it. We're in the uh, the reading room at the Red Rose Cave and Pothole Club, to give it its proper name, yeah. Bullpot Farm. It's raining outside. It is. A classic Yorkshire weather. <laughs> the UK's best caving club. I've had the worst trip up the track <laughs> as well, which I should know better for. <laughs> well, what brings you here? I mean, you're clearly not a, a northerner. No, no. I am, I am a southerner at heart, so... Uh, when I was um, when I was about twelve, uh, I was at school. Um, I was uh, I looked at this climbing one. I thought, ah, I'll give that a go. And um, so I signed on for this after school club. Started it at four, finished it five or something six. So I thought, you know, I'll give it a go. And uh, quite liked it. So I did it for best part of a quarter of a quarter of a term. And. Uh, I was getting on quite well, getting up most of the routes uh, that were that were there, and uh, safe to say they've not changed since I've since <laughs> since I've left. Uh, but um, one afternoon, my mum had to go. I remember she went to a doctor's appointment. Don't know why, but um, I thought, you know what? I'll see if I can jump on the climbing and caving after school club, and um, so I did. And uh, we went to a place called Split Rock Quarry, which is a ginormous um, limestone quarry. And uh, it's called Split Rock because either side, it's got about 40 or 50 metres of like sheer, it's like a massive like slot taken away in the countryside. And um, I went there and they were doing the big abseil from the top. And when I was there and I was young, I was only about 12. And uh, it was massive. It felt like 90 metres. It was humongous. I got to the edge and was like, no chance am I ever going to do that. <laughs> like, I just said, no. And um, I backed off and I was like, mm, I didn't like it. Uh, and then the following week, they said they were going to cave and I thought, wow, oh, let's give this a go. It's a bit different. And I went and I just thought, wow, this world's amazing. You know, it's underground. It's so calm. It's not about who can do what or whatever. It's about teamwork and 
you know, getting everybody to do a little bit of everything. And, you know, everybody's there to support everyone. And I kind of like that. So I thought, oh, this is cool. So that was how I got started. That's how I got hooked to it. And uh, since then, I've just been pushing it and trying to have as much fun as possible <laughs> and trying to cause as much chaos as as possible in my way. I think most people get introduced to either, you know, it's got your climbing wall, abseiling, yeah. a caving when, when they're kids. And they kind of have that one kind of burst of it and then kind of get lost to the sport and then might come back into at uh, university do you kind of continue on kind of through your through your school years yeah um so when i was um when i got to about secondary school uh my caving kind of died off a little bit because uh, i joined a sailing club uh it was part of a uh sailing club when i was at school and we used to sail um a team of fireflies and we used to go off to a couple of events each year uh, during the summer term uh, and then uh, at the end of that I, th- I went to college and when it's when I reached the age of 18 I was able to be an adult and uh, you know you're able to do whatever you want and it's great uh, so I thought right I'll go and join a caving club and I chose to join the Mendic Caving Group and uh, I wasn't even 18 when I, when I started I was 17 but I was going to be passing through 18 quite soon and they took me to a few caves like GB and uh, where else did we go? Went to quite a few caves. And then when I was past 18, I got I started going for my full membership. Um, but it, it was quite difficult, I remember, to get my full membership. So I'm not sure if I ever officially got my full <laughs> membership. I think I, I did about six months and decided that um, it's just too difficult and I wasn't going to bother. Um whether or not they changed that now, I don't know. But uh, I ended up going to the Cerberus uh, Caving Club, which is uh, kind of like East Mendip, and uh, they have a very it's a very different club. Um, again, they've got a, a club hut just like uh, the uh, the MCG, uh, but they they do a lot of digging there instead of kind of like trips, yeah. club trips. Uh, so it was, it was yeah, it was very different uh in terms of what they do uh so i i used to do quite a lot of digging with them uh during my during my uni kind of like holidays and then uh during during uni i was i was up at liverpool studying uh, a bsc in outdoor education and uh i was doing all sorts of kind of like uh srt training for the club and things like that and the one thing that you learn about kind of cavers is that they've got they've always got a story to tell. And it's great, you know, you come you come here the red rose and you sit down on a Friday night or a Saturday night and you hear the stories that are being told and um you know, some of these stories are so farcical and kind of like <laughs> why? But you know, they're great stories, you know. We got some members like Dark and Steve Gray and the Starkers and you know, all sorts of people. And, um, you know, they, they can tell you stories for days and days and days. And, you know, it's it's just awesome to kind of see. And you, you'll you see the new members come in, like the younger generation, younger than myself. I'm only 26, but, you know, the younger generation, like the university cavers and kind of like the ones that are just coming in, they'll, they'll come in and tell their stories. Yeah. And everybody's got a different story to caving. And that's what I kind of like. Uh, about caving everybody's got a different story 
and uh, it, it unfortunately I think it is a dying sport caving and uh, I don't like the idea of that because the amount of people that I take caving both commercially and through Red Rose or whoever you know I love caving it's like the best thing ever you know Andy Sparrow who is a a CIC based down in Mendip many people will know him uh, who are caver uh, in the Mendips or, or, or afar and um, you know he said he said to me once caving is kind of like the adventure tourism it will boom at one point but no idea when it's like digging you know you keep digging in a cave till you find this mystery chamber and when it's the same thing with that in the commercial world we'll keep dipping away and keep dipping until we eventually hit that breakthrough and then the media will be all over it and they'll be like oh caving is the new best thing to do in the outdoors at the moment it's hiking and climbing um so you know we are waiting for that kind of like boom this is caving and this is commercial cave come and do it you know it would be awesome to kind of like it might spike a massive generation in caving uh i really want to see that i think you might get a bit of kickback as well, I mean, you're talking about stories there, and one of yeah. the reasons I joined Red Rose was I used to walk past here with my dad and knew what was going on at the, the hut, and I kind of wanted to be a part of that and interview people who were there, speak to people, and and yeah, I wanted to um, explore Lancaster Hall because of the way it was discovered. That was kind of kind of my passion. You know, what you're talking about there about kind of a booming commercial caving and possible and and that it kind of. Straight in my head, then I thought about you know the boom of commercialism on uh, Everest and how you kind of your old, old isn't the right word, but you kind of your traditional mountaineers have kind of kicked yeah. back against that. Mm. Do you think that we're not saying it's going to happen, but do you do you think that the kind of the sport's ready for that? You know, knowing what you know now, and there is quite a lot of politics in clubs, not not the Red Rose, but there is kind of po- lots of yeah. politics. You know, yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of politics within caving. Um. I think if there was going to be kind of like an economic boom in sort of like adventure tourism and caving, I think it would be a big wake-up call to uh, to the industry. Because there's not actually that many. Uh, if you look at kind of like the, the mountain leaders and the rock climbing structures, there's quite a large base of like mm. people who are like willing to take you out for a walk or a climb, you know, at a crag. But when it comes to caving, you could probably... I don't know, there might be only about 300 of them. And only 100 of those people have got a qualification to set you into a a multi-complex kind of cave system. You know, so there's only about 100 CICs that are kind of like on the books. Uh, So, you know, it's a very small world of who can take you in to see some of these amazing places. Um, So, yeah. Do you think Kevin's got a bad rep, uh, do you think caving's got a bad rep? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think any sports have got a bad rep, you know. You kind of... If you look at kind of like climbing, um, there was a new film that came out, The Alpinist. I don't know if you've seen it. Not yet, no. It's a, it's a good watch because it really does kind of show climbing in a very multi-complex kind of view. So it was kind of like climbing, soloing, is great to to kind of see. And um, what he was doing um, was, was kind of like 
beyond like comprehension to most people. I went and saw it with a with a friend, uh, Joe Gittins, and um, Joe's been ice climbing for years and years and years, and I've followed up many many of kind of ice climbing uh, venues in in the lakes, and uh, he was kind of sitting next to me. His his asshole was shaking quite a bit because, <laughs> like, the stuff he was doing was like uncomprehensional to him, let alone me. I was just like, "Wow, some of these places are stunning. They're great." But like, we're both thinking we want to be attached to a rope, you know. Um, and then that comes down to like climbing's perspective of what is soloing, and it's like soloing's cool. I've done a bit, not massive amount, but I've done a you know a bit of soloing. Um, nothing particularly hard or, or, or gnarly but um, it, you do kind of look at it and you go is that stupid is that is that going to give climbing a bad rep and you kind of think well yeah maybe if it goes wrong it might give a bad rep unfortunately I don't want to give the plot away you'll have to go and see the alpinist for yourself uh, to kind of see that rep but um, yeah it's it's quite an interesting view because it sees it at very multiple different angles. Um, you know, Alex Honnold, one of the probably the greatest soloists of all time. I'm sure you've seen the mm. Free Solo. It's an amazing film. Yep. The angles are great, but uh, you know, it does make you feel a little bit sick. I found because I was like, especially on that Bodring piece. Even he was like. You probably don't want to watch it because, like, you're going to be a little bit sick. There's probably. a bit where he has to do a bit of a karate kick. Type yeah, movie, yeah, and it's a hard move, you know. Yeah. It's um, without having the conversion table in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it is way higher than E4, which is mental, which is what I would say most people would consider quite a hard grade in, in climbing uh, to, to lead, let alone solo it, yeah. kind of like multiple thousand you know, feats of, of climbing it, it's, you know, uncomprehensible to most people uh, if, 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 if any <laughs> real people can comprehend that um, and then things sometimes happen uh, when people are pushing it and think that, yeah the public's perception is, is very much pushed upon media's views and uh, what, they, what they feel you know the person who's behind the desk writing the writing the report. It's all the public's views will be based upon that journalist's view. Um, so if they say, "Oh, that was crazy and that was stupid," the public is probably going to go, "Oh, yeah, it's crazy and stupid." Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but but is it crazy and stupid? You know, getting in your car and driving from where you live near Liverpool and coming up to work is probably if you think about it, the risks yeah. are far more dangerous. You go on a motorway where you're travelling at 70 miles an hour, you know, what are the risks that can happen there? So I guess it comes down to, um, with when you're pushing it in, in these areas, is how far are you willing to push the risks? Is it is it worth it? I went caving today, and I was, um, was going up this place I'd never been before uh, in Knots 2. Uh, which is quite a nice trip. Uh, I got to a point where I was like, there's a bit of rope there. Never seen it before. Give it a good tug. Didn't snap. So I thought, eh, I'll give it a go. It was only attached to a quite a... It was attached to a quite a large boulder. 
Um, but I didn't know the history of the road, and I was quite happy to push it. But I wasn't with anybody. So I was totally reliant on my judgment and like my skill level, my knowledge of testing that road, which I just gave it a pretty good kind of like bang, bang to see if it held. And it did hold. And I was like, no, let's see if this goes. You know, you, you, you make these calls and you live by them. And if they go wrong, then the public will unfortunately will have their view on it and usually it's the journalists behind the screen writing those articles that influence the people's uh, views and opinions well we've just seen that with the um, with the chap in um, in Brecon Beacons which we'll come on to in a, in a minute because I know that you volunteer for, for Cave Rescue but obviously you know he got quite deep into OFD didn't he and um, you know sustained a well it was described as a hand injury or whatever injury it was and obviously couldn't make his way out and next thing you know the media have you know, it's the excitement of the rescue and will he get out? What well, I mean, he was going to yeah. get out, you know, and, you know, 300 rescuers headed down and things like that. And then afterwards, it's let's give cavers a kick in. You know, it's like we've had your little kind of, you know, excitement of, of getting the poor chap out. And then it's right, you know, it's even dangerous. Should they be doing this? And mm. it just seems the way society is at the moment. I've just mentioned there that you were involved for cave rescue and you went down to, uh, to Brecon. What was your kind of role in that rescue? Uh, so it was a very long long roll um, for, for the amount of time that I spent in the cave but I'm glad I went down because there was a lot of people there who were who'd been there for quite a long time and I could see people coming out and they were pretty tired so I do feel that the journey that I took to get down there was, was really worth it because some people were totally bollocks when they came out and you could see it you know they were tired you know they'd done maybe two or three shifts underground um, so I got up at about um, it was ten to ten to three when I got out of bed uh, in the morning on Monday, and uh, I drove to Steve's house, and I, I drove him to Clapham where we were where we were planning on on getting into Crow Three and getting a lift down all the way down to Wales, uh, but we decided that we'd uh, we'd just drive ourselves down, and uh, we got we got to um, to the South Wales Cave and about. I think it was about nine o'clock, um, off the top of my head, uh, which gave us about about an hour just to kind of like chill out and let our brain kind of completely uh, desensitise from the driving, because you know driving takes a massive toll on what you're doing, and you know it's quite tiring driving for <laughs> for a long period of time. Um, so we had about an hour kind of like just chilling and just chatting and resting, and then. Pardon me. We had a kind of like a uh, a briefing at about eleven o'clock with uh, the duty controller above ground or incident commander, and uh, this went on for about it was a good twenty minutes. He was telling us about the in-depth picture of what's happening underground and how it happened in the first place, because uh, with a lot of these rescues there's quite with with these big rescues there's quite a lot that you know you need to know about before you you uh before you go down and but also you know there's no point getting to a rescue and going well what's happened you know you know so you kind of need to have a bit of a background uh a brief into what's going on so uh we had that and then we got kitted up and then we had a further brief before we went down because every minute things were changing 
because we were tra- they were trying to keep it as dynamic as possible to make sure people were doing the job that they needed to do. Um, but that also depended on, you know, how fast was that stretcher coming out, you know? So was the stretcher coming out the speed that they predicted it was? Or was it coming out faster? Or was it coming out slower? If it's coming out faster, is it best to send us in to do a kit collection? Um, because they had so much kit in the cave. You know, their, their kit store was empty when I got there. It was just empty. I've never seen a kit store empty at, <laughs> at a cave rescue uh, incident. And it was like, wow, it's just an empty box. <laughs> um, you know, so there was a lot of kit inside the cave. Uh, I still think they're trying to get it out now. And it's good two weeks on. So, um, you know, they, they've been working hard down there. Um, so anyway, we, we started heading up and we went underground. And we got just below what's known as the corkscrew. And he was doing all right. You know, he was on time. You know, we, we met him exactly where where we should have. So, uh, you know, we started making progress um, with, with the 12 o'clock team that went in. And you do about, I think it was meant to be about six hours of, of, of kind of like graft to help, help him get out. But um, we, we ended up doing about eight hours and we got him out to the surface at the end. So I kind of like the finish shift, if you like, because um, there was no point pulling us out fresh. It's six, it's six hours. We could easily do another two, you know. So they just kept us in there, and we knew we weren't that far out, and he knew he wasn't that far out as well, to the point that, you know, he said to me, "Can we just get out now?" <laughs> I was chatting to him. We were talking about, um, you know, what kind of um, caves he wanted to do next, and. He was telling me where he lived and I was talking about the caves where he lived, like near Pen Park Hole in Bristol. And it was, you know, we were having quite a good chat about what was going on. And I was making some slight, slight jokes to him just to like keep him happy. And uh, I quite, I quite enjoyed chatting to him. He was a good lad, you know, he was, he was awesome. And, you know, it comes down to like, cavers are generally really sound human beings. And, uh, and when somebody hurts himself, course you want to go and help them it doesn't matter about the driving or how long you're going to spend down there you know it's the fact that it's a very small community and we want to just help each other you know we want to push it but we also want to help each other um and i don't think anybody in the caving community wouldn't have been there if they couldn't if you get my drift yeah Think. there's no judgment as well Jack is yeah. there? I've found no. that with cavers and especially speaking to yourself and other people in cave rescue you never make a judgment on you might do in the hut afterwards like what's that silly getting yeah. on and done that for but you, there's no judgment it's kind of you know chaps or chapess is in need and we, you know, mm. we need to get them out and yeah I mean you just kind of drop what you do and just go yeah. um, and that's that's basically what I did can't remember what I was going to do Monday. I think I might have just gone caving. I think I had a friend up and uh, he was staying in Lancaster. So and I, we had probably ended up going caving. Um, so either way, I was going to go caving anyway. So, um, you know, it, it didn't matter to me. And uh, I, w- I was just happy to be caving, to be honest. And, <laughs> and just, just being there, it, you know, I like caving for myself. Uh, and doing stuff but sometimes it's nice to cave as part of a bigger team um, on, a, on a big team and 
it's just a shame that sometimes on these bigger team jobs, unfortunately, something happens. Yeah. You're, you're there for a reason. You know, I wasn't part of the three counties system uh, day, but I would have loved to be part of that. You know, being part of a big team, making sure everything runs smoothly is, is pretty cool. Mm. Um, uh, unfortunately, I was at work. Um, I think I was running a caving day, actually. <laughs> um, so I was underground again. But, um, you know, it's, you know, being part of a big team in a caving and it, lots of people doing their, their roles, it's pretty cool to be a part of a big team and getting jo- getting a job done. Uh, and especially when there's quite a lot of graft in it as well. You know, on a three-county system, I can't imagine how many diving bottles were, you know, going down mm. to the various sumps to meet to meet the divers and get them through you know it's going to be a lot of graft there was a lot of volunteers I'm well aware of that and there was certainly a fair amount of media coverage but nowhere near as uh, the Brecker it's not as exciting has it yeah I think <coughs> I think that's what it comes down to I was thinking about this um, after all the reports came through and I was thinking ah, I wonder why the BBC and ITV and Sky didn't do as much publication of media about uh, the three counties traverse because they did on the Brecon rescue. I think it comes down to, unfortunately, you know, people want to hear about heroic stories and um, they want to hear about the graft and you know they want to see an outcome. Now, the outcome of the three counties system was divers got A and B, and it was impressive, really impressive. And, you know, it's blown quite a lot of the caving, caving community worldwide that they've done it. But to, to, to say that, you know, 300 people did the longest stretch carry in British cave rescue history, if maybe, well, probably not the world, but, you know, it's certainly a massive long 53-hour rescue. You know, it's it's got more of a kind of uh, compelling story to it. You know, we got this chap out, and yeah, it, it unfortunately it does sell a bit better. Um, even know that um, the the three county system was uh, still a massive achievement, especially in Yorkshire. You know the diving is hardcore. There's there's no ways to put it about it. Um, well, it's the it, it's it's what's obtainable. Jack, so you just summed it up perfectly there. That you know, it, it, obviously you have got the kind of life or death stuff and the rescue and and, and, and people like that out. They love that kind of heroic stuff. But you, you know, people can walk into OFD, can't they? You know, they can you can you can have a you know it's a, it's a showcase, isn't it? OFD, from what I remember. There is a showcase yeah, further yeah. down the hill, yeah. Yeah, so people can walk in, they can kind of see it, but the thoughts of kind of people diving in caves, it's not obtainable to people. So you get a story out saying that you know the longest dive and things like that, it's like, oh yeah, that's impressive. It kind of, it washes it washes over people because it's not obtainable for most people. Yeah. Whereas when somebody climbs Everest, people will always think, well, I've climbed a hill, I could probably do that. And, you know, there's, there's that kind of connection with it. Yeah. And well. I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, probably could, could climb Everest. Um, well, they couldn't. Could they? Well, <laughs> yeah, let's be fair. But. It's, yeah, that's true. Probably a lot a lot of people have the willpower and the want to, and the, probably the fitness to climb Everest if they wanted to. 
But you, you ask people if they want to go caving. Like, oh, no. Don't want to go caving. I've got a roof above my head. I'm going to be claustrophobic. <laughs> and uh, the one thing I've always learned about taking people caving is usually it's a bunch of bullshit. You know, people aren't claustrophobic. I get them in the cave. They're just screaming and shouting for more tight stuff. You know, get me in the tight squeeze you can find in this cave because I want to push it. I'm like, okay, yeah. I'll go and take you to the lung squeezer in, in lung change, you know. <laughs> it has a tight one, you know, and they do it and they're like, that was cool, you know, and they're just hooked, you know. They're hooked and they'll come again. Um, and I don't know what it is, but people really like pushing the squeezers mm. once they know that they're not claustrophobic. Yeah, once you've seen somebody else go through, you think, oh, I'm going to have a go with Yeah, that. and there's a little, I guess there's a little, sometimes there's a lot of peer pressure, especially on like <laughs> stag dudes and things like that, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of peer pressure and sometimes you've got to be that mediocre guy and be like, if you don't want to do it, don't feel like you need to push it because in the back of your head you're thinking, if they get stuck in there, you've got to deal with it <laughs> and you're like, oh, don't know if I really want that pressure because um, there's quite a few squeezes around the place that you're kind of just like. Hmm. do I really want to be kind of like pulling someone out of there for a kind of like a prolonged <laughs> period of time um, or talking them through it which you, you never really mind talking them through it but they're not going to come back and go caving's awesome they're going to go back in a way going caving's terrible yeah and I don't want that no one wants to go away from something and think oh that was terrible why should I do that again um, so I think that you know sometimes you, you kind of as a leader it's it's really hard to kind of like make that right decision you just comes with I guess experience pardon me and uh, you just have to play it by ear a little and go with what your gut instinct's telling you because uh, sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong um, but yeah yeah you just have to go with it I think See, you've made it through. Well done. It's just a quick note to say, please give me a, a follow at masquerandymedia.com. And also I've got a new book out as well. So Secret Dales was published uh, a couple of weeks ago and it is also available in uh, in my shop. The second half of my chat with Jack, we look at uh, his work with people with special needs, his passion for caving, a little bit about his solo caving exploits, conservation, and also how you can get in touch with him. Uh, see you at the end. You must get quite a lot of... I mean, I've spoken to you a number of times about the things that you've done, you know, freelance, you obviously do a lot of kind of mm. caving and taking groups out, but you've done a lot with kind of people with special needs and, yeah. and things like that. You must get a lot of satisfaction from what you do. Yeah, I mean, um, I work, um, I used to work full full time. Uh, when I moved up here, I started an apprenticeship with uh, uh, the Bender Trust and uh, they're an amazing organisation uh, and they, they do a lot of work specifically with people with special uh, educational needs, um, uh, physical, mental, and emotional. And they do kind of climbing and caving and kayaking, and it's awesome. It's getting people out. And, you know, when I'm working there, it's not about how hard can they push it or or anything like that. It's about them just giving it a go. Because a lot of the time, people don't have the opportunity to try um, you know and they come away and you know they might be in a wheelchair or they might you know not have the best 
uh, walking ability, you know. So giving them a chance to go climbing is quite a big thing for them because they could go to a climbing wall and they get turned away. And now, unfortunately, that might be the fact that a climbing wall isn't catered to it or the climbing wall doesn't have the experienced staff to deal with it. Um, and Bendry is kind of like very fortunate to be able to tailor itself specifically to that market and uh, they make it a fantastic centre they've got amazing staff who work there full time and uh, they, they give out experiences to people who really wouldn't have that chance to to really give it a go without without them and uh, every time I've been there you know at the top of the climb all I see is smiles it's great seeing the smiles of people like doing their first climb or going came in they're like oh look at that it's a stalactite and they, they you know they know what well they might have not seen a stalactite before but they've heard the name before <clears> and it's like putting the two together it like blows their brain away and you know and they're like we're underground you know never thought they'd be underground you know so it's amazing to see their kind of like eyes glow massively and it's like the whole world's opened up so they're like wow I really see the world now and it, you know, it's really nice to see, you know, that through everything like some people have been through, that they can still kind of be amazed and see things that they might have never had the privilege of being able to see. It's really nice. You, um, you face lit up when you were when you were talking about that. It kind of you can see that that kind of passion to, you know, show people what. You know, the outdoors is like access to the outdoors and your passion of climbing and, and caving. You can tell that it's it's not just a job. No, um, it's never been a job. I just really, you know, when I get emails from companies asking me to take them caving, I just reply, yeah, is the kit books and uh, how many clients am I going with? That's all I ask because I'm just interested about taking people caving and giving them a good time. You know, I might, you know, when it's canyoning and climbing, I really enjoy taking people canyoning as well. But uh, it's it's always the same. It's just about giving people a good time and giving them as much banter and, if you, if you will, uh, and get, yeah, just making sure they're happy and they have a good day and they feel safe. Because I think, you know, a lot of times, certainly when I was younger, I knew when I was safe or not when I was standing at the top of Absal. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, a lot of that comes from the instructor that you're with. Mm. Do they have that personality to kind of, you know, have a bit of a joke with you and make you smile and, you know, tell you that you're safe and you can push it. It's a good, you know, it's safe to push it. So, um, yeah, I've kind of, I've always been keen just to give people a really good time in a really safe environment and that's yeah that's probably like my philosophy it's mm. just trying to give people a really good time in, in such a kind of like I don't want to use the word mellow because I think that kind of destroys the environment but just trying to make yeah make them feel not uh, I don't know I want to just make them feel as safe as possible and make them smile as much as possible because uh, you know everybody deserves like 
to have a taste of adventure mm. and sometimes I think it can get a little bit missed in in the, in the professional sense we, we give people adventure and we give them smiles but do we do we give them a taste of adventure or do we give them a little bit of a kind of like our view of adventure yeah. like a professional view of adventure there's massive talk uh, that I have with uh, with one of my mates Jamie and Kendall when we when we when we work in the Esk in High Water, you know where it's really pumping it, and um, we talk about having a throw line when we go in, and we've talked about this in length, and uh, we've got to the point where if we get there, we're feeling that we need to get the the throw line. Are we in a position to to lead and coach? Are we playing in white water? Because, you know, the water's quite strong. And in the S, there isn't really much room for error. You know, you jump in, you kind of, you generally swim down downstream. And if you can't get your feet up, and uh, you, you get washed away. So then, then there's a need for kind of like a throw line person. Um, but... You just kind of like wonder if if you're throwing a throw line to pull somebody in, does that mean that the 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 water current is uh, maybe too fast for your clients? And uh, you know, we, 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 I have in-depth conversations with my mate about this, and we just uh, we came to the conclusion that if we need a throw line in the S, maybe we're just slightly out of arena. Yeah, oh, we shouldn't be there, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, so yeah it's quite an interesting kind of we always have these chats I have lots of chats with people um, I do enjoy it <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't remember much banter when you abseiled next to me when my uh, chest harness came apart and bull put the witches to be fair which was pitch quite, was that? quite interesting I think it was about the second or third and my chest harness was basically over my head and you came down and you just went How have you done that that was quite amusing that was quite a long time ago, wasn't it? It was quite a long time. It feels a long time ago. Yeah. Since especially it's a worrying amount of time ago. Yeah, it has been a while. Mm. It has been a while. Where do you see you, you yourself going Jack, with uh, <clears throat> with kind of? And I know you're freelancing now, and yeah. you, you're pretty much based up here now. You're in the CRO, yeah. Red Rose. You're not. You're never allowed to leave once you're here. <laughs> so do no, you see once... yourself kind of? This is your base now, and you're going to have a bit of a burgeoning adventure empire or are you going to go off and do something like you know walk here to Everest or you know what they say about the farm you, you've got to keep the animals inside it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, what somebody told me um, I can't remember where I think it was on the uh, the Welsh rescue um, got to keep the animals inside the club <laughs> and I thought that was a great quote um, so uh, um, where where do I see myself going well you know, I'm still chasing up um, the infamous CIC qualification, the Cave Instructor Certificate, which is kind of seen as the highest qualification in caving. Um, and I'm really keen to kind of finish that off quite soon, if if I can. And um, uh, and from there, well, who knows? I'm just going to cave more. I just really enjoy caving. Yeah. The idea of just going caving is just awesome. You know, when I'm when I'm caving, I don't, I don't care about many things. 
you know, I, I go caving and, you know, sometimes it's by myself and sometimes it's with people. But as soon as I get underground, nothing really matters. Not kind of like the rent that you do with your house or the electricity bill or, you know, whatever, whatever, like, kind of burdens on your mind. Everything seems to go when you're uh, when you're underground. And, uh, and that's what I really like. You know, nothing matters. You're just caving. And you're down there for however long you want to be. You can come up within five minutes or you can come up in... Mm. 50 hours, 100 hours, whatever, you know. And uh, that's what I like is you can just go for however long you want and nothing really matters. And you can, you know, you can go down to Lancaster Hall and just sit at full pot if you wanted to for two hours and just kind of like take in kind of like the waterfall, Mm. the big chamber and just kind of desensitise yourself and de-stress from life and then you can come back up and just kind of, Wow, that's amazing. You know. There must be something keeping you up at night, though. Everybody's got something that keeps them up at night. There's always things keeping me up at night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What keeps me up at night? Um, The fact that I just want to go caving. (laughs) Um, Usually it's politics and bullshit. (laughs) But um, I try and let that slide, to be honest. Um, But to be honest with you, you know, I just think about caving. If you if you look at my YouTube history, it's generally just caving. Uh, I don't do much else. You know, I sit at home and I look at caving videos, uh, and I just think about going caving. And that generally spurs a kind of like a a solo trip or something. I watch a bit of TV and I think, oh, I'm caving. What should I do tomorrow? And I'll just think about a plan of what I'm going to do tomorrow whilst I'm watching a bit of TV. <laughs> you know, so really, it just it's like eat, sleep, cave, repeat. You know, you get. I'm sure that's on a t-shirt. I haven't got it, but um, yeah, eat, sleep, cave, repeat. That's generally my life. <laughs> so, what politics is keeping you up, then? Oh, just uh, to be honest with you, <laughs> there's not a lot of politics at the moment. But sometimes there is a lot of politics. You know. Um, trying to do your CIC has quite a bit of politics. Oh, that sort of politics. Yeah. Okay. Trying to like complete your CIC. There's a fair amount of politics that you need to kind of get through, and it's a bit of a pain, but it's just kind of like a burden that you need to need to do. And you know, sometimes you think about crazy new ideas about what you can do in caving and how to make your life simpler at work and all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, what keeps me up at night? That's a <laughs> that's a good one gets you thinking yeah in a second. I was looking on the um, UK caving forum yeah before and I noticed that uh, Giants Hall in in Derbyshire had been vandalised quite recently and there was, there was talk some cavers were on there talking about kind of well let's just get it gated like it used to be when I say vandalised I mean kind of graffitied and things like that yeah. does that kind of worry you at all with kind of big groups I mean obviously not your groups because you're with them and you know, responsible caving and things like that. Does that kind of worry you that these special places will yeah. get trashed? Or is this something that kids have always have done, you know? Well, so, kind of like this year, um, I think I've seen two... I've, I've been in two caves that have been vandalised. Um, Long Chance was vandalised. And all, all the graffiti was taken away. And... I put a post up in the in the kind of there's a very small group of kind of like the Yorkshire uh, cave leaders page. Uh, there must be only about forty of us in there, um, and I said, 
please hope that this is none of us guys because this is this is going to go down if it goes down on us it's going to be really bad and I got loads of responses saying no definitely wasn't us so I was like Phew, that's good then I thought well it, it just wouldn't have been the you know the the kind of the the non-commercial scene because I was like these guys are just not interested in, in you know going to Alan Potts and then I was thinking is it a really big kind of like commercial enterprise who doesn't do a lot of caving that might have come in and done it and then the last thing I thought about was maybe it's just a bunch of scallies vandals that came in and I think they did it in um, Yordas as well recently yeah, yeah they did yeah. Um, so you uh, can understand it in Yordas but well you can obviously you can't but it's like two minutes from the road but the churns is still it's a bit of a wander in yeah from the track isn't it I mean you've got to be kind of pretty much intent on that's what you're going to go and do yeah yeah I don't whatever I guess motivates them to go and graffiti a cave is beyond our comprehension because you know we're all about protecting uh, and kind of keeping things as kind of like pristine and and clean as possible Uh, and I'm sure with your work at the Millennium Trust that you know you do a lot of conservation work yeah we've done a lot of cave a lot of cave clearance over the last few years yeah Kind of removing graffiti and you know bits of farm machinery and and stuff like that and stabilising mm. entrances. Yeah, yeah, we're the same. Interesting, conserving. Yeah, I remember doing. Um, I did a I did a uh, conservation day with the CNCC, and um, you know as you go out of Lingleton, there's a, a quarry on your left hand side, a massive quarry. Just at the right, there's a you go across the field and there's a cave in there. It used to be an old showcase. Yeah, Skirwith. Say again. Skirwith. Skirwith. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I always forget the name, um, but I did a, I I did a, I remember doing a day in there with the CNCC, clearing out all of the old wood and the timber from the old show cave, mm. and uh, the amount of stuff we got out there was like, where did this all come from? <laughs> you know, because you know most people look there and you know, they don't even realise there's a cave there. Um, and I don't know how long it is, but it's, what I explored after we all cleared it out must have been at least two hundred meters of cave. Um, and then you look at caves like um, White Scar and um, an Inglebush Show Cave, and you go, "Wow, their idea of a showcase is a very different <laughs> idea of what our showcases are now." Um, you know, because it really what it really was just like a couple of planks of wood, kind of like on the floor, and people used to walk along the planks of wood to get through the show cave. It was a very different ideology of uh, what what we consider a show cave now. There was that sense of adventure, Jack. It kind of goes back to what mm. this conversation's about, doesn't it? it? That, yeah. That people are prepared to you yeah. know, grab a candle and walk along a couple of wooden boards and, yeah. and see what's doing. There was one at um, not far up from uh, Catnock Cave uh, in Thornsgale. I think it's called Holmes. could be Holmesill Cave, which is mm. another one which water comes up to your neck. And that was a show cave. You know, mm. and you kind of think, yeah, it is different from your Ingleborough Caves and... Yeah, well, Ingleborough Cave, you know, in that first section as you go through, that used to be completely yeah, sunk. Yeah, it was underwater, wasn't it? Yeah, and then it was only when they built, uh, they diverted the waters when, you know, and you can clearly see it as you walk yeah. through that you've got that layer. Um, it was, it's only about, I don't know, 30 centimetres high where people used to walk through with a little candle yeah. in front of their head. <laughs> Bonkers. Yeah. Uh, I can't think about going caving, you know, with a candle. Uh, it just seems... You know, crazy when we got all this technology. You know, LED lights. 
you know, stuff that people are coming out with, like Rude Nora and Scurrying and Petzl uh, and Phoenix. You know, they're all it's all LED, and they're pushing it. You know, they're really pushing it. Like most lights now are easily over a thousand lumens. Um, you'd be kind of like not a little bit crazy to get less than a thousand lumens, but it's just the technology's increased so much. It's still pretty pure sport, though, isn't it? You think about you know, at the end of the day, wellies, suit, hat, like. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. And you think about some of the other sports. So you, you, what does the average person carry if they climb up Ingleborough these days? Yeah. You know, probably the best pair of boots they can get and waterproofs and rucksacks yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, caving is, yeah, pretty pure, like you say. You know, you can't beat a pair of Dunlop Wellies. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it sounds crazy to say that, but I've been caved, I've only ever caved in Dunlop Wellies unless I was in America. And America's got slightly different caves. A lot of their caves are a lot drier than ours. They're quite dusty. And uh, I try caving in wellies over there. And I just, my ankles and my, my soles of my throat just aches for days. So I thought, right, once I was out there, I've got a pair of shoes. Because, like, everybody was telling me that, you know, <laughs> you know, it hurts in wellies. Um, so I got a pair of shoes and I was like, wow, really does make a big difference. <laughs> um, but then I came back here and I, and I, I went back to... Uh, uh, wellies and I think for the British climate wellies are just perfect and again with the oversuit you know um, the oversuit are great because our caves are pretty rough uh, in comparison to a lot of caves around the world and uh, we wear a fleecy because it's freezing down there a lot of the time um, the other week um, I think it was like was it yeah last week we went down Swinster and the the weather was kind of like uh it was like start raining. It was heavy rain the day before, and uh, I, we got to uh, we got to the lane in in Kingsdale, and I looked down at the at the beck, and it was still a little bit flowing. And I thought it's there, so it probably won't be in the cave. <laughs> uh, we got into we got to the edge of the cave, and I looked down and went, "Ah, oh, yeah, it'll be sound, it'll be sound." And uh, we went down the first pitch, and went, eh, "It's a little bit." a little bit more splashy than what I remember it last time I came down and then we got to split pitch and it was like a water cannon it was like whoa <laughs> so uh, my mate Sol went down first and <laughs> another one of my mates Christian he looked over and went right now he's being water cannoned in the face <laughs> and all my mate could see was in the face and you do wonder kind of like would a lot of people want to do that there's <laughs> a certain type of p- person that's willing to to have kind of like, you know, canyoning slightly different because you haven't got a roof on your head. Uh, and there's not much difference between cave and canyoning. It's the fact that you've got a roof on top of your head. But it's the fact that you've got a roof on top of your head <laughs> that everybody goes, oh, no. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it's quite interesting sometimes. It has a lot more kind of like committing feel to it just because it's got a roof on its head. That's why, especially when you've got a duck underwater and... And things like that. I think once you've done that the first time, and once you get that kind of water overhead moment, you're okay, aren't you? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay, but I think once you've done that the f- f- first time, whether you've done it really young and it doesn't bother you again, but. Yeah, I remember when um, my first trip down to some one in Swildens, uh, I can't remember how old I was. I think I was like. Must have been like 40. Uh, I was still quite young. And I remember getting there. And I gave it a go three times. Just couldn't do it. It's literally no longer than one metre. It's it's pretty small. But I could not get my head around, like, going through it. I was like, I've come a long way. 
if anything would happen, like, you know, it's only that yeah. far, it's only me, but I physically couldn't get my head. <laughs> my body was like, go for it, go for it. And then my head was like, no, don't you dare go for it. <laughs> uh, so I came back, like, um, I got redemption. The school let me come back on, uh, on another trip. And, uh, we went all the way down and I did it first time no no worries no no kind of complaining and I was like yeah I got through I got through and then sometimes it is a bit like that with caving sometimes you go to a place and you just go I'm not fucking going in that <laughs> it's just fucking revolting um, and why would I do that and then you come back another time you go ah it's not too bad actually <laughs> And then you're stupid enough to keep redoing it, redoing it. <laughs> and then you're, you're kind of like your perception, your comfort zone increases. Um, there is a very long progress um, to, to the point where you, you're happy just to kind of go and do things by yourself uh, if that's what you want to do. Um, now, solar caving is vastly controversial. Um, but then everybody likes a bit of controversiality I guess <laughs> don't they you know I'm, I'm kind of happy with going solo came because I, I've got the I feel I've got the skill and the knowledge to, to go and do it and I feel quite lucky to be able to have people who have taught me how to cave in, in such a way that I know how to make sensible risks yeah. uh, take sensible risks and make the certain judgments that I do when I'm down there by myself that you know basically if I got it wrong would result in me probably dying in hypothermia you know so i feel quite lucky to cave with such uh, a vast amount of people that i get quite a lot of um skill i think is the right word skill and continuity between between people um in, in multiple aspects uh which is really nice i feel quite privileged to to cave with such humongous rare people on kind of like a yearly basis it's greater be with so many people underground uh it, yeah it's just great chatting to people and just having shenanigans the best trip i've ever done has to be uh does it have to be well i guess it, caving has to be an underground trip doesn't it um caving takes me in much lots of different ways uh and sometimes i do trips above ground as well um that are caving based but just above ground um but as we're just talking underground for this sake uh, I honestly think it's Lost John's Lost John's is such a nice cave um, it's got 200 metres of kind of like rope work there's not many caves in the Dales that has well probably is kind of like quite a few caves that have about 200 metres of rope work in them but of the complexity and like the length of what there is there you know is you know it's really good in there it's quality caving uh and it's all you know it's all on p bolts you can just go there and get it done and it's great and there's three routes you can choose there's monastery there's dome and there's centipede and you can you can do it in a day or you can do it in half a day you know depending on what you choose and where you want to go when you get to the bottom um but I really like Joss, Lost Jones because you get lots of options and you can just pretty much choose when you get there. <laughs> um, on the flip side is the one that you would never do. Never do again. <laughs> never do again. Yeah. Uh, so when I was... Um, uh, when I was... Uh, when I was a kind of... Starting out caving in, in the Red Rose, uh, I got invited and uh, it was Provenance to Down. 
and uh, they said it was a black I think it was a black book tree I'm sure they said it was a black book tree they said to me right the first half of the cave is really great second half of the cave it's going to be fucking hard and uh, I was oh they sold it to you then (laughs) oh yeah they sold it to me yeah but I didn't realise quite how hard it was going to be because I you know I was just I was prepared for a kind of like grade four nice cave and uh, I went down uh, the first half of the cave was lovely and then you get to kind of like this passageway and it's just straight uh, and it is straight for literally half a mile 600 metres bam and uh, there's three levels there's like the narrows and you basically go down the streamway and it's really narrow <laughs> uh, hence the name and uh, you know foot flush you die pretty much um, or there's the the I'm sure it's a 60 60 foot traverse and then there's the 90 foot traverse and there's no ropes up there you're just doing it free climb and uh, I did I did the 60 but um, when I when I was going across it I nearly died twice <laughs> so uh, I mean, it was all within I don't know what it was I, I um, it was uh, I might, maybe I kind of like just losing losing the will to live in there or something <laughs> and um, I was just taking my eye off the ball but basically you come to this section you have to slide down kind of like must be about 5-10 metres vertically with no rope and uh, there's nothing for your feet really you're just basically holding yourself in with the the pressure of your body and then you loosen it and you slide down and um, I slid down until the kind of like the passageway slopes back in again and then there's just a, a sheer drop below you that goes on for another 30 metres to hit the floor and um, my feet were kind of like touching the side of the walls <laughs> on both sides but none none of them were gripping <laughs> my weddies were just like sliding around and I was like oh shit I'm going to fucking go for it here and um, this guy comes around from above slides down races out and he's like I've got you and literally as he said I got you I kind of slid down just, just like a millimetre and my foot grips. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, you know. But him to slide down, all I had to do was just go down a millimetre and I was all good. And uh, I started moving kind of like along along the passage to the right. And my foot gets caught in this kind of like little V slot. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't pull it out. <laughs> so I thought, right, I'll just keep it going. I don't know what, what why I kept on going. But at one point, I think my head was like kind of like my foot was higher than my head, and uh, and uh, you know I'm not attached to anything. I'm just trying <laughs> to get my foot out. And I'm just yanking the damn thing, and uh, eventually it does pull out, and uh, I managed to still kind of like brace myself in the wall, and then I slide back down to the floor where, where kind of everybody else is, and I was like, I'm never doing that. I fucking again. <laughs> um, we need to pee about this. It's fucking crazy. Now I'm sure I'm going to get lots of flack in, in your comments from Caver saying, oh, it doesn't need Bolton. But it's, you know, it's quite serious. And then people were telling me stories about the 90 foot traverse. There's a place up there called Greg's Horror. And uh, I really can't be bothered <laughs> to do that. Basically, you have to kind of like traverse with your tiptoes on one wall and your shoulders on the other and there's no rope or anything you're just kind of like going across yeah, it yeah. and uh, that kind of just sh- shivers up the spine <laughs> I was like I really don't fucking want to do that that's just diabolical why would you want to do that you know that is like contemplating death really that's yeah you must be having serious thoughts about caving if you want to do that well you just basically explained that caving's really dangerous and you almost die so why do you do it <laughs> why do I do yeah. it um because it's about that sense of adventure, you know, what's around the corner. You never really know. 
you know, when I was when I was out caving in uh, America, I went caving with uh, a guy called Derek Bristol, and um, uh, he's got his own YouTube channel. You can uh, he's got hundreds of videos, and I think he's an amazing um, kind of YouTuber, and he explains his uh, videos really well. Uh, and um, I went caving with him in South Dakota. And we went into a wind cave, which is a really lovely national park above ground. But equally, it's got some amazing format, formations below ground. It doesn't have kind of like a lot of stalactites and stalagmites, but it's got this thing called boxworks, I think they call it. And uh, it's basically just crotch hatchings of calcite. It's very weird. And uh, I'm sure it's calcite. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's really crazy, kind of. But you never really know what's around the corner. And uh, we were surveying passages that had never been surveyed before. And uh, we, we went to this one place on the second day and we found this chamber. And um, it was only <laughs> roughly about a metre high off the ground, you know, off the cave of the floor. And um, it was about, I don't know, 100, 100 square metres wide. And then in the middle, there's a chute that went up to another level of passageways. And uh, I found a tag up there. And I remembered the tag, and we could never find out where that tag was in in it, it, on the survey. We pulled it up on Derek's computer, and we couldn't find what that tag was. So I don't know if Derek's been back and found out what that tag really was. Maybe I just had a dyslexic moment and read it completely wrong, um, which is probably highly possible with my brain. Um, but um, we named this chamber uh, the John Moore's the John Moore's room, uh, but it had a secondary name of uh, the International Pancake Room. Uh, and to answer your question uh, is, you never know what lies around the corner. You know, we found this chamber and uh, we didn't know it was there. And that's what I really love about caving is that, you know, you can go into East Gill and there's a survey. You kind of know what's around the corner, but you never really do till you get there and you see it for yourself. And that's what I really love about caving is that, you know, you can just go there and you can see it, and uh, you don't. You don't always have to be super hardcore to get there. Some places you do, but some places you can just yeah go and explore and have a good time, and then you get a little story to tell. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just yeah, it's really cool to kind of be able to have that privilege to go somewhere that not many people have been able to go to, um, and yeah, be somewhere pretty remote as well. Is uh, is you know, uh, what I really like is, you know, when you go kind of like climbing and mountaineering and you do all these big peaks. Usually, well, not always. A lot of stuff in the, uh, Canada that's being pushed now is a lot of it's unclimbed. Um, but probably somebody's been to the top of that mountain before you. Yeah. Um, but in caving. It's probably never really that many people have been down there before. You know, you go to a crag in the Lake District, thousands of people, maybe millions of people have climbed on that one crag. You go on at Eastgill and, um, you know, you're probably looking at 1,000, 2,000 people have probably ever been in there, you know, because it is, you know, it's quite it's quite hard to get in uh, unless you don't have the proper skills to get in there. Um, there's not that many, well... Maybe 2,000 is quite rare. Maybe 10,000 people have ever been in Easygill, maximum, I would have thought, over the kind of years and years that it's been around. But it, it comes down to what's accessible to people. 
and, and like the kit that they have to offer I think is yeah thank you Jack it's been I've enjoyed it I've spoken to you many times but I actually <laughs> sat down and spent an hour with you and actually discover what makes you tick if people want to follow you or find out what you're up to what's the best way of getting um, in contact with you uh, Instagram is is kind of like the easiest you can just uh, jack.overhill and uh, you can follow me there I've got loads of stuff going on most most weeks I've got something uh, posted up um, uh, and now it's kind of like a quiet season there's lots of caving stuff going on I got quite a lot of caving pickies from, from today from my little trip so uh, you'll probably see some helictites and some other cool formations that I kind of took whilst I was down there awesome thank you no worries well thanks for listening to the latest edition of the Masquerandy Media Podcast I hope you've enjoyed it a little bit different from the usual ones which you just get to listen to me waffle on for about 20 minutes about what's going on in the world Uh, I hope you enjoyed it please like subscribe do everything that the influencers say that uh, you should do and uh, and yeah I hope to bring you another podcast soon thanks for listening